Welcome to the Brand the Interpreter podcast. I am your host, Mireya Perez, and this platform is dedicated to sharing the stories of language professionals, that is, the interpreters and translators from around the world. This show aims to highlight not just the profession, but mainly the people behind the amazing work. These are your stories about our profession, and this is the Brand the Interpreter podcast. Today's episode is sponsored by Liberty Language Services. Liberty Language Services is a woman and minority-owned language service company. They have over a decade of industry experience providing on-site, video remote, and over-the-phone interpretation, translation, and ASL services to public and private sector clients. They're continuously recruiting for freelance interpreters and translators, so make sure to check out their website for new career opportunities. Liberty is passionate about making interpreter education more accessible to everyone. So whether you're new to interpreting or have been interpreting professionally for years, you can take advantage of their online courses, workshops, and CEUs. Their most popular online course is the Professional Medical Interpreter. It's a self-paced, comprehensive, 40-hour medical interpreting course for individuals looking to get qualified to interpret in medical and healthcare settings. Upon completion of the course, students will be able to earn the title of Qualified Medical Interpreter. And for a limited time only, Liberty is offering a discount for the Professional Medical Interpreter course to brand the interpreter listeners. Use the discount code BTI50 when you sign up online for the Professional Medical Interpreter to get $50 off the course. You can find the discount code and more information about Liberty Language Services in the episode notes. Welcome back to another episode of the Brand the Interpreter podcast. This is Mireya, your host, and I'm going to keep this intro short because today's episode is a bit of a longer one, but a good one, I promise. Before we dive in, though, I want to send a shout out to those of you that have been sending me messages through social media about the podcast. A huge thank you. It would be amazing if others could see your messages, too. So if you could rate and review the podcast, you'd not only be helping me, but you'd be helping others finding the podcast, too. Thank you also to those of you that share the podcast or your favorite episodes on your social media platforms. I appreciate you. Okay, okay. Now, on to the show. Seth Hammack graduated with a degree in computer science from Baylor University in 2001, specializing in cryptography, and went on to serve as a Peace Corps volunteer in the Bolivian Andes from 2003 to 2005. Upon returning to the U.S., he went to work in Austin's tech sector as a software developer, working for startups, one of which was Bizarre Voice, a social media management platform which went public in 2012. Drawing on these experiences, he earned his master license as a court interpreter for Texas in 2017 and began full-time interpreting soon after, although still keeping up with advances in software trends building his practice, earning just a few hundred dollars a month to more than $100,000 a year, with top firms being among his clients, he decided to launch GoSignify, a freelancer platform for professional interpreters, which he gets into in this episode, and of course, so much more. I really hope that you enjoy today's conversation as we get into technology in the profession. So without further ado, here's Seth Hammack. 
Seth, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to have you. Yes, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Oh my, I cannot wait to get started on our conversation because it is going to be epic if I do say so myself. Yes, I think so. About this topic. (laughs) Yes, it's a very important topic and we're seeing a lot in the news of artificial intelligence. Yeah. So audience, hang tight. We will get to that uh, eventually. But like, I like to start all my episodes with getting to know the interpreter on the other side of the screen a little bit more. Um, I'd like to ask you, Seth, what did you aspire to be when you grew up? Well, uh, when I was about 13 years old, I went into my dad's closet and I found an old acoustic guitar that he had when he was in Vietnam. And uh, at that time, in kind of the mid-90s, early 90s, MTV was all the rage. And so I got to watching a lot of heavy metal bands. And um, so I wanted to be a heavy metal guitar player. And um, so I spent uh, quite a bit of time with my amp and my Fender Stratocaster learning how to play Metallica songs and Megadeth songs. (laughs) Were your parents into that music? (laughs) Well, no, not at all. Uh, it was totally foreign to them. Oh, and, so, uh, yeah. They were worried yeah. for you. Yeah, they were worried for me um, because I spent uh, a lot of time playing the guitar, and I still spend time doing that even today, uh, You know, 25 years later. So um, my grandmother, um, she found out about it, and she said, well, you're going to learn how to play the guitar the right way if you want to do it um, because we've had piano players in my, my family as well. So they insisted that I get classical guitar lessons. Well, of course, much to my chagrin, I was dragged off to the junior college and had to sit up with, uh, with a, a teacher learning finger, finger stroking technique on the guitar. And, um, but as it turned out, all the heavy metal guitar players were like classically trained in some capacity. So I instantly got into it. (laughs) I love that. I I like how, how grandma came in and like kind of saved the day. Like, okay, like what you're making is noise. Let me get you into something (laughs) more. Yeah. Who knew that, you know, heavy metal and classical music were, were strongly intertwined. Oh my goodness, which is actually so interesting that you even mentioned, because that's something that I think we'll definitely talk about with regards to the profession and technology, but not quite yet, guys. So far, I'm still interested in knowing a little bit more about you, Seth. Where did you grow up and what's a favorite or fond memory that you have where you grew up? Well, I grew up in uh, Pensacola, Florida. Um my father was military and um, is a beautiful place to grow up right on the beach, sugar sand, white beaches. If anyone who has ever gone to the Emerald coast of, of Florida, uh, Southern Alabama, it's beautiful. And there happened to be a lot of artists there. Um, a lot of uh, old hippies and surfers and so I really enjoyed being in that community, and I think it stimulated a lot of uh, what I know about American culture, um, specifically about music. There were lots of musicians there, and I regularly met with people, played in bands with people who had toured with the Allman Brothers or 
uh, some other Southern great uh, bands. Um, and so I had a band uh, all through high school and then uh, early into college. And uh, some of my most favorite memories are when I was just busking at restaurants, playing Bob Dylan songs, uh, earning a little extra money. Usually they would you know, throw me a hundred bucks for a three hour gig and a plate of food and a couple of beers. And that was great. <laughs> what a life. <laughs> You're living a life. Yeah. <laughs> so, so this dream about being a musician was actually pretty serious, huh? Like you, that, I mean, you carried that with you in, in throughout your college years, even it sounds like. Oh, I do. I still do. You know, in my, in my mind, uh, I'm still going to be the next greatest rock guitarist. <laughs> <laughs> Don't ever stop dreaming your dream. I'm curious though. Do you still have your father's guitar? No, don't have that guitar anymore. Uh, but I do have a few guitars still. Um, I mainly just play, uh, I play folk rock now, uh, calm down a little bit. I still do listen to heavy metal quite a bit, but, uh, <laughs> I do listen to uh, a lot of folk rock and being in Texas, I, I like the alt country music and I'm always going through Spotify, trying to discover new musicians and read their histories and um, finding out what their lives were like. And I really find it fascinating. Um, a lot of the Texas music culture. Yeah. I think um, having some context on the individual definitely gives a different spin to the experience. So um, like kind of like brand, the interpreter does when we're talking to our interpreters, I'm, I'm wondering at what point did you involve or get, languages or, or languages come into the picture for you? That's a really, that's a really good question. Um, and I've had to think about that question a lot as I've grown in my career as a certified uh, court interpreter in Texas. Um, and it really all began when I was about eight years old. My grandparents uh, are uh, descendants of uh, some of the early Germans that came to Texas in the 1830s. And they happened to settle on the border uh, in a small town called Edinburgh. And during the summers, we would go to Edinburgh and all of the neighbors were Spanish speakers. Um, and of course, many of the kids my age spoke English as well. Um, so I had to really adapt and, uh, if I wanted to really fully communicate and I, I was fascinated by it. And so, um, my mom was a Spanish teacher, though she never really, um, imparted a whole lot of knowledge to me. I was still inspired by it. And I remember picking up these, uh, these books, um, in the bedroom. Uh, on how to conjugate verbs in Spanish. And I was probably eight or nine years old. And I just found it so fascinating that I started to make a list of nouns and I would go and see my friends and try to practice, practice them a little bit. And it really just turned into uh, a fascination and somewhat of an, of an obsession. And so when I got the opportunity in, in high school to study Spanish, I took the opportunity. It was, it was something that I knew that I would enjoy. And uh, so I did two years in high school. And then when I got to college, I went to, I went to Baylor 
and it kind of changed a little bit. And I started studying computer science. And so uh, computer science is based on computer languages. And I started to see uh, a lot of parallels there between the computer languages and spoken languages. Um, And I studied Spanish at Baylor as well. And I went on to uh, go to Mexico to study um, at the uh, Universidad de Guadalajara uh, for a summer. And I was so fascinated by the culture change that I remember calling my parents and saying, I want to stay here a little longer. (laughs) (laughs) I want to stay here a little longer. This is just, it was so much fun. It was just, uh, the world was my oyster. Um, And so later on, after I graduated from Baylor with my degree in computer science, I was looking for ways to to go and, and have that experience again. And uh, after struggling to find uh, a way to, uh, to broaden my, my cultural experiences, my roommate at the time, at the end of my senior year, I came in frustrated saying, you know, I've been looking at jobs overseas and it's very difficult to do. And especially if you don't already speak the language. And I knew enough about Spanish, but I definitely wasn't fluent or conversational in it. Um, and he said, well, have you ever heard of the Peace Corps? And I said, the Peace Corps, what is that? So I hopped online and there's a whole history there. Yeah. And you end up in Bolivia as a Peace Corps volunteer, right? Between 03 and 05. What did you take from that experience? How did that come to be? And then what did you take from that? Oh, gosh. Um, Those are such fond memories. Uh, It was... uh, it was it, it was a an experience of intense highs and intense lows. Um, I was stationed in a small town in the Bolivian Andes uh, called Oruro. Um, it's ninety percent Quechua and Aymara, indigenous languages, and I was there uh, with. Uh, save the children. So I was assigned to save the children, a non-governmental organization. Um, I'm sure most listeners have heard of it. Um, And I was a math teacher and I taught uh, computer skills. Um, You know, there's a funny story because we went to a place to do our training as Peace Corps volunteers called Cochabamba. And um, it's kind of in the valley. Um, and it's beautiful. It's called the city of eternal spring. Uh, and, um, and so we spent nearly three months in this just marvelously beautiful city, uh, with you picking mangoes off the trees and, uh, it's very European and it was delightful. And so the end of our training was coming up and there were 19 of us. And so, the director comes in one afternoon and he says, well, I've got some good news and I've got some bad news. And we're like, okay, well, uh, let's have it then. And he says, well, 18 of you are going into the lower region of Bolivia, which is uh, in the South. It's uh, more desert-like. 
And uh, in the West, it uh, borders uh, Brazil, and so it's a lot of jungle. Uh, and it's, it's beautiful. It's paradise. Um, and he says, one of you is going to go to the Altiplano of Bolivia. And at this time, that part of Bolivia in 2003, I believe it was 2002, they had what was called the infamous water wars, where they tried to privatize the water uh, in that part of Bolivia on the Andean side. Anyway, uh, lots of social unrest. And there was uh, a lot of... uh, a lot of social unrest and uh, protesting in the streets. And so I had a a private conversation uh, with the director and I said, well, you know, who is going up there? And he says, well, I can't tell you that, but I can tell you that whoever goes up there uh, might have the best experience of their life and they might have the worst experience of their life. And so uh, the last day came and we all got our assignments and the envelopes and it was me. And I was the one to go up. And um, admittedly, I tried to get out of it. I had <laughs> I, yeah, I had the other volunteers who were in the cohort before us. I went out to Santa Cruz and I said, hey, you know, let me replace you. You know, you've got a computer lab here. I'll do I'll do whatever you want. You know, and he, he would write emails to the director and try. But, you know, it was um, it was futile. And so um, but I went up there. Uh, I tried to have an open mind about it. And I'm glad I did because I believe that I had a much richer experience than anyone else. Wow. What was the, was it the social unrest that was the uncertainty on your end of why you did not want to go? Uh, it was, um, it, it was because I didn't want my, my service to end. Mm. Um, and uh, if you know a little bit about Peace Corps, it's not uncommon for the countries, for the embassies in those countries to evacuate due to civil unrest. Um, but for me, it turned out to be a lot of fun because I, uh, I palled around with these uh, two Bolivian guys I met, Oscar and Mar- Marcelo, and we had a band called La Oruga. <laughs> and we would go down to the cafes. And of course, I, you know, I knew how to play guitar. So in, in Latin Americans love heavy metal. So, I mean, <laughs> it was an instant, you know, friendship. Um, and so we would go into the cafes and, and we'd play music and we'd pack up our stuff and go to the next cafe. And we'd wind up doing that till, you know, 1 a.m. Um, and, uh, you know, everybody would want to come see the gringo play the guitar and uh, with, his, with his two Bolivian buddies. And um, so it was a lot of civil unrest. Uh, That area of of Bolivia has a lot of mining. Mm. And the miners have been disenfranchised for a very long time. And so it wouldn't be uncommon for me to be sitting at my desk in my office and, you know, pull back the curtain and here comes two or 300 miners with their hard hats on. and They're throwing these sticks of dynamite in the street that just make this terrible, terrible raucous, shaking the windows. And the first time it happened, I was utterly terrified. Uh, but after the second or third time, I kind of looked around and saw my colleagues, my other, my Bolivian colleagues, and they just kept on working. And so I was like, well, just I guess another that's day. the way it is. Just yeah. another day. <laughs> wow. 
you, you brought your studies though, to this experience as well, right? Um, how did you bring computer science into the picture? When I applied to the Peace Corps, I was able to choose where I might want to go. And I prioritized my, my top three were like uh, Russia um, and then uh, places in Asia and then South America. And I got a phone call uh, a few months after I had applied and um, the guy on the other end of the phone, he said, hey, look, you have a very unique skill set with computer science. And so we would like to try to help you take advantage of that skill. So you can either wait a year and we will send you to Latin America where you have some experience speaking the language or in six months, we can send you to Africa or an, an Asian country where you would be uh, teaching English as a second language or digging wells. And I thought about that and I decided to wait. So I had to wait a, a year before I, before I went. So I had to find odd jobs and uh, I just found jobs at companies where I could program software and waited out my year. And then they send you to Bolivia where like 90%, like you just said, speak Quechua. Did you need an interpreter? Um, most of the younger generation speaks Spanish. So it was a lot of the grandparents who speak Quechua. Mm, yeah. um, and so, you know, I would have to wind up learning a little bit like saludos, how to say like Imanaya Kasanki. And anytime I say that to someone now who speaks Quechua, I'm like, whoa, yeah, <laughs> which is, you know, how are you? and Quechua. And so I had to wind up learning those um, greetings to uh, as a cultural politeness with my students' parents. Um, but they understood Spanish very well. But anytime I went to the market or something, they, they would be uh, everyone speaking in Quechua. Is there a word in Quechua that uh, stood out more than any other word that had no direct translation to it, where you it it would have to be explained because it's really unique to their culture. Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, however, I can't remember any of those words now. Oh darn! Um, <laughs> Do you remember the explanation? <laughs> yes, but, uh, essentially, there's a there's a saying in in, in Aymara, um, which really underscores the integrity of their moral culture, which is don't lie, don't uh, steal, don't cheat. And um, I really found that to be something that they, they worked hard to live by. Um, and it was something that made a deep impression on me, the, the innocence of the indigenous cultures. Um, and it, it's something that you really can't, understand unless you've been there to see it because being in the altiplano of bolivia and being in those communities is like stepping back in time a thousand years uh, if you were to go into their homes and uh, several times i was invited by these parents to come in for a for a, a plate of charquecan which is fried llama or a, or a mate de coca coca tea and it's a dirt floor with a, with a very crude wooden table. And, uh, and if you didn't see the box of matches, 
on the table, you wouldn't know what century you were in. Mm. Um, and that, that always left a huge, huge impression on me. And then you come back to the States and I'm curious to know when you begin this transition from those experiences from the Peace Corps, from computer programming into taking or even considering interpreting as a profession. Well, I remember I had a conversation with the director of the Save the Children office in La Paz. So after I finished my two-year tour uh, in Oruro as the math teacher and the trainer in IT skills, I was asked to continue my work in the capital city uh, because there was more work to do. And they wanted me to do what I had been doing in a few other departments in the country. And I remember one time asking the director, I said, you know, I've been doing a lot of this interpreting for donors and dignitaries from embassies who would come and visit our projects, um, because, of course, some of that's federal money. And I said, you know, this is a pretty I'm I'm fascinated by this. And uh, hmm, maybe it could be a career option. And he really discouraged it. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. it's like, you don't want to do that. You know, it's a there might not be too much work. And um, and so I didn't really give it another thought. Right. I didn't I didn't uh, really pursue it any further. And once I had gotten back to the States, I I always thought that uh, I wanted to start my own business. And um, it became a point where I was really able to use that to become a freelancer at some point. I came back and I got into the the tech community in Austin for a brief period. Um, And I decided that I really enjoyed community engagement. Um, And I loved uh, I love speaking Spanish. And so there, there became a point where. I came in one day after my software job and I wasn't very happy sitting in front of a computer for 10 hours a day is difficult work. And I said, I think I want to do something else. And so we had had a small child, uh, our first child at that point, who was just a baby. And she said, well, um, I've been volunteering at this health clinic, uh, which is free here in Austin, the volunteer health clinic of Austin. And they need interpreters. And you're always speaking Spanish with the um, with the maintenance workers or whoever that comes by. So why don't you just go try to do that? And so I went and did that. And here I am, uh, <laughs> nearly 10 years later. Wow. So you, you start as a volunteer interpreter in a medical setting and then work your way up to become a certified court interpreter. Did you consider formal training after your experience in that medical setting or how did that work? Yes, I did. I actually, I was really fascinated by it because there was one night I would go and do the night shift. And so it would go from probably seven in the evening to 10 at night, um, almost exclusive, uh, exclusively Spanish speakers. And so I do triage and then I'd take, you know, go with a patient to do skin checks or something like that. And one of the doctors, one of the dermatologists said, you know, you're really, you're really pretty good at this. Um, have you ever thought about doing it professionally? And I was like, I didn't 
think there was anything, any money to do it professionally. I was told. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was told, you know. So <laughs> I hopped on the computer and I found this list of interpreters, of court certified interpreters. And I just said, you know, this person looks like they have the most experience. I'm going to call them. And so I just called this person who happened to be a very good friend and colleague of mine now, perhaps you know him, Steve Mines. And um, he gave me the introduction to it and put me in contact with a few people. I took some classes at the Austin Community College uh, with a good co- friend and colleague, Esther Diaz. She's a, she's a, a well-known individual in the interpreting community in Central Texas. And uh, from there, I studied really hard uh, to, for the, to, to take the exam, um, didn't pass it the first time and I had to really struggle through it, but I kept, I kept getting more jobs. I kept getting better. I kept improving my technique and my skill and I presented for the exam and I finally passed it at the master level. Man, there was so much in that, you know, brief little story that you just gave, uh, Seth, starting with, this whole experience, like on both ends of the spectrum, right? Like you've got one individual saying, absolutely not. And then you've got another individual saying you should, it's, it's, you know, it's a great idea. And what's interesting is just that it kept, it kept kind of nagging, like the experience of becoming uh, an interpreter, getting into the language profession kind of still was like, you know, it was there. It kept, it lingered. Right. I mean, so much so that you end up volunteering as an interpreter in a medical setting and then only to, you know, have someone voluntarily just say you should consider. And the fact that you then took that inspired action towards, I mean, I find it really awesome that you're like, I'm just going to call them, (laughs) you know, let me just (laughs) give them a call. I think that is like so great because many, many of us, and I'll, and I'll throw myself in that pile hesitate for fear of, I don't know, fear of they're going to think I'm crazy, fear of like, they're not going to have time for me at that level, fear of, you know, like, why would they take me under their wing? And and then, you know, many of us could fill in the blanks with so many excuses as to why we wouldn't take that action. Yet you call Steve and not only not only do you connect with him, but he he gives you all the right resources for you to continue pursuing this this now new dream of yours. So I, you know, all that in itself, it just comes to show you guys that the words of one person may not necessarily be, you know, the wise words. I've had I had someone else on the show not too long ago that actually went through the training. Uh, interpreter training and uh, was actually told that he wouldn't be a great interpreter because of his accent. And then some time passed and and another uh, evaluator or proctor told him he'd be a great interpreter because of his accent. So anyway, it just comes to show you just another experience uh, here with Seth, you know, about the both ends of the spectrum. And it just, you follow your heart. Hey, before we continue, let me tell you a little bit about the HLS Education Terms Online Glossary. The HLS Education Terms Online Glossary provides easy access to the Spanish translation of educational terms, 
no more shuffling through countless glossaries. The HLS Network of Language Consultants comprises a veteran district and county office of education translators that have an in-depth knowledge of K-12 terminology. Translators will have access to terms, acronyms, and phrases related to special education, English language learner programs, parent advisory committees, medical and legal vocabulary, academic subject-specific terms, and so much more. In addition, this live glossary allows users to request new terms and tag favorites. Using the HLS Education Terms online glossary will increase your translation speed, accuracy, and vocabulary consistency. Try a free 30-day trial today by visiting www.hlsglossary.com. Yeah, and I think I, I think that opportunities present themselves. Um, and uh, you, I think when people are young, it's it's easy to not to not evaluate advice that's given to you. I mean, it's it. It's advice. I think that the connotation of advice means that it's all inherently good for some reason, but it's not. Um, I've had many people throughout my career tell me things uh, that turned out to be not true for me. Maybe it was true for someone else, but it wasn't true for me. Mm -hmm. And for me, my, my philosophy of life has been follow the road until it just you either run into a dead end um, or you have some reason to turn around and find another path. Or if it's really important to you, you make your own path. And Mm -hmm. I think that is really something I've seen a lot of interpreters um, struggle with. And, but it's, it's an emotionally demanding profession. Let's yeah. be honest. It's yeah. it's it, it's a highly emotionally demanding profession, and I've seen that when it comes to doing court work, mm. um, you know, legal interpreting, doing depositions, um, it is is one thing, and that can be extremely challenging as as well, emotionally draining. You know, at one moment you're I'm being told by three Spanish speaking attorneys that you're definitely uh, cut out for your job. And then the next week I'm being told by someone else that, you know, um, that I've made, I don't know, I've made some mistake or something. And so it's really an up and down situation as far as the emotions. And I think a lot of people get wrapped up in that. Um, And it just takes experience. And I think that uh, interpreters who are just starting out get really discouraged by that. Um, but the name of the game is perseverance. Mm, Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Especially if this is something that, you know, you, you've just been dreaming of wanting to do for years. Seth, I'd like to take us now into the moment where both of your worlds collide your, uh, language world, and then your world of computer science, as the years go by and and you experience you know what it is to be an interpreter in the legal field in the court setting where did the notion start to come to you with regards to technology and the language profession well um 
I've always been fascinated by technology. Uh, when my brother and I were in our, uh, when we were just barely teenagers, uh, 1985, 1986, we got our first computer. Um, and I remember I was fascinated because it came with this manual of all of these little things you could do with the computer, you know, program these little things and it'll, it'll whistle a short tune or my brother wound up just totally dismantling the computer and then putting it back together again. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> and so we were, we were really fascinated. We were very fortunate too, to, to be able to have a, a computer at that time. Um, and so I have always been, uh, a software programmer. Um, I wouldn't say that I'm necessarily completely proficient at it because I don't do it every day anymore. Uh, but I do keep up with the technology. Um, and the more uh, we started going forward in the 21st century, um, you know, or 2009, 2008, I started seeing more and more um, machine translation. And so I started to really follow it and study it and, and try to understand uh, where the advances were going. Um, and so I tried to, I tried to incorporate it in every way that I could into my practice and into my technique. Um, and, and I also meet it's because I needed something to give me feedback on the job I was doing. Right. I mean, I found it a very easy way for me to get instant feedback on something as simple as, Hey, this is the wrong word or, you know, maybe you could say something another way. And I found that for my mental acuity, the machine translations were a great way for me to practice and build my own skill. Um, so that's really how I began to, uh, where I began to see the two worlds collide. Um, and so the platform company, Go Signify, that I founded, it is, is an offshoot of that. Um, in, in many ways, uh, but it's not necessarily focused on machine translation or, or artificial intelligence. It really is a platform uh, for professional interpreters to connect with clients in law and medicine where the interpreters are specialized because that is the most important aspect to our, uh, to our services and technique that are going to bring us into the years to come. Give us an example of how you integrated technology into, you know, your, your day-to-day as a professional that helped enhance your skill sets, just so that we can, for us visual learners, we can visualize what that looked like for you. Sure. So, so, um, one of the things that I would do early on to practice, uh, especially before I was taking the court, uh, interpreting, uh, examination uh, was that uh, the early models were these statistical models of machine translation. So they're nowhere as near as accurate as they are now, but I was still able to basically turn on a YouTube video and turn on the microphone to Google Translate, for example. And as I was practicing my simultaneous technique, I would just watch it stream the translation on the screen to some uh, video that I was watching on YouTube that I was practicing with. And that became a really good technique for me to, uh, to improve my skill. In the sense that, you know, you were seeing your choice of words versus the machine's choice of words or how so? Yes, exactly. Uh, exactly. 
um, because I'm not a native Spanish speaker uh, and I wasn't necessarily in a, in a community anymore where I could get feedback and I was hearing it all the time. And I was having to kind of create uh, a really diversified uh, technique for studying. And I know that's something that a lot of interpreters that I speak with now really struggle with that. Um, they don't know how to study and that's really challenging and as we move forward and the demand for interpretation grows, translation, interpretation grows, um, there aren't going to be enough people coming out of the institutions to fill the need. A lot of work is going to have to be done just uh, solo. And so developing those techniques is really important. Getting good advice on how to study and create tech, studying techniques uh, around interpretation is really important. Thankfully, um, I found, I happened to find a few. Um, I had, uh, I met other interpreters and spoke to them about it. Um, and I developed some of my own. Um, and so the techniques like frozen translation, for example, um, to actually become accustomed to it, it, translating little bit, bitty pieces at a time. Um, but even before that, many interpreters I speak to media don't understand that so much of interpreting is mental capacity. It's memory that you're, you really need to improve before you even start the interpreting uh, the component. Right. So many times, uh, interpreters ask me, well, you know, how, what do I need to do to improve my memory? I say, well, you need to just listen to a recording, um, and, uh, try to, memorize little bits and pieces of it in your native language first and simply repeat what you've heard. Right. And you'll quickly see that, okay, well, I just listened to this, you know, to a passage of uh, this two sentence passage and I missed two or three words. Right. And so then there's kind of a, a light that comes on and they're like, wait, I see what you mean. If I can't remember accurately in my native language, I'll never be able to interpret into another language, into the target. And so that usually becomes the big aha moment uh, when they finally realize that, hey, wait, I need to start in my native language, a language I know best, whatever that language is, not necessarily a native language. Uh, but you start in that language and then you move on, right? And so part of that memory component is also working under pressure. Um, a lot of the interpreters that I speak with who um, work in court sometimes say, you know, I have a great memory. But when I get on the witness stand, things start to fall apart. And it's understandable, right? I mean, I've been up there before and I can't speak any language. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm totally lost. Uh, um, and uh you have to have techniques for dealing with that as well. And a lot of those are kind of realizing that language is an imperfect phenomenon. Mm. And it really is a phenomenon. It is there. There is it. It's just nothing but gray area. Um, of course there, there are accurate you know, interpretations and translations, but context plays so much of an important role in what we do 
that you need to really internalize that. If somebody, you know, somebody says, oh, you know, this lawyer objected to my interpretation. Well, I mean, inter- lawyers object to stuff all the time. You know, just because it's your interpretation doesn't mean it should be personal. Right. You mentioned an important piece here with regards to an important part of interpreting is context. And when translators or interpreters hear this notion of machine translation or AI in the industry, a lot of times the fear comes from, well, number one, perhaps uh, not having enough information, but number two, uh, thinking, you know, well, the AI can't possibly understand context in order to deliver an accurate rendition, right? How have you seen it evolve since you say, you know, you were intrigued by it from the beginning? Kind of guide us through what you've seen in terms of how AI has evolved in the language industry. And then we'll get a little bit more into present day and go signify. But uh, talk to us about how you've seen this evolve through time. Well, uh, artificial intelligence is a very broad term. Um, And more of what we see today is something called neural networks. Uh, but as far as uh, artificial intelligence goes, you know, a lot of a lot of ideas come into our minds when we hear artificial intelligence. We think a robot. We think of um, you know a, a machine that can I don't know uh, flip pancakes or something like a that. A takeover of the world. Um, <laughs> a takeover of the world, perhaps. Yes, exactly. Job, you know, uh, long jobs, a long line of uh, unemployed people. I mean, there's all kinds of ideas, good and bad. Right? They come along with artificial intelligence. I think. Um, so. Early on, it was these. It was it was based on statistics, and and I mean early on. I mean like maybe ten to twelve years ago. Um, and as a matter of fact, I wanted to tell you, Mireya, I have an article coming out um, in with the National Association of Judiciary Interpreters and Translators called "The Rise of the AI Translator." Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I'm currently wrapping it, wrapping up edits of this article. Um, but it'll come out in this quarter's newsletter. Uh, oh, wonderful. That means that by the time this episode comes out, it'll be out and I can link it to the episode. Yes. Yeah, I can't yes. wait to read that. So in this article, I, I, I cover I cover some of this. And um, the early models uh, around circa 2010 were these statistical models, right? So if I see these three words together, what's most likely going to come next? Um, and so interpreters do this. It's called prediction. Mm. It's something you should practice. Yeah. Right? Uh, because it, it is based on context. And I mean, conference interpreters are masters at this. Um, they, they predict where the conversation is going. So you're not struggling in that moment to figure out what, what to say, right. Or what to interpret. So this is how the early statistical models of AI worked, machine translation specifically. Um, you know, we have these three words. These two words are 98% chance that these two words are going to come next. Okay. So as the technology has developed, it's gotten to where this technology is not so much statistical anymore. It's more predictive. So. It would be like 
if you were going to program a computer to do a certain task, right? Say, um, say make a plate of pancakes, right? You're going to tell the computer what to do every single time. There's, it, and it's not going to make any mistakes. But what AI and uh, deep learning and neural networks and all these kind of language that you hear these days, what's happening now is that they can create software code that can essentially solve problems without you having to tell them what the problem is. It can recognize problems um, in a very loose sense. That's, that's what they're able to do. So they can learn. Mm-hmm though they cannot understand yet. Yeah. Um, and, and so that, that's where it's going. And so uh, there's an organization called OpenAI, founded by Elon Musk. And there has been a lot of debate around artificial intelligence. I was just reading an article this morning in the New York Times about a big data breach by the Chinese government into Microsoft Exchange servers uh, a couple of weeks ago. The point of this, they believe, is because China wants to create world-class artificial intelligence. And to do that, you need lots and lots and lots of data, lots and lots of varied data to train it on. Um, so you, you, you basically give it this huge data set and the machine starts to figure out all of these connections, essentially. Um, and so OpenAI, founded by Elon Musk, they had this big debate. Okay, well, if artificial intelligence is this powerful, if it's as powerful as everybody thinks it is and it can literally change our economy and it can wipe out jobs it can change the face of government uh, the world over, then we need to make some pretty serious decisions. So at the time, they had this project called GPT-3. Now, GPT-3 is a natural, it's a project in natural language processing. And it's basically a neural network that was trained on billions and billions of pieces of data. And so what we find now is, is that using this, it's, it's, it's incredibly accurate uh, when it goes to translate or when it goes to uh, produce, uh, produce content, for example. Um, as a matter of fact, there's a, a website called, uh, I think it's called inferkit.com. And it's a small company that was one of the first to really get their hands on this and commercialize it. Um, and it came out of OpenAI's decision to basically make this technology public because there was so much of the prevalence, like in the 2016 presidential election, of fake news. Well, all that fake news was created by artificial intelligence, right? Um and any one of your listeners can go into furkit.com and create a free account. And, and you can see this work. You plug in a few five or six words of an idea that you might want to write an article about. And um, it can uh, basically, it will create an article for you. And the articles that it produces 
have such a refined style that you can't determine whether it was a human that wrote it or whether it was a, a, a skilled journalist. And so I started using this for my blog articles. Not that I'm just having a machine write my blog articles, but sometimes the machine will bring out ideas that I hadn't thought of or like directions to go with my article. So I'll ask the machine, you know, hey, I want to write an article on I don't know, artificial intelligence. And I want to write an article about artificial intelligence and interpreting um, in during an immigration crisis and along the Texas border. That's specific. And it will produce an article with sources and quotes and everything Stop. you can imagine. What? And it's it's uncanny. And it's it's an incredibly powerful technology. And so again, I don't use these to write my blog articles or something anything like that, but it is very useful for creative writers. College students are gonna run to it. <laughs> oh, oh no question. And here's the other thing, Media. There's no laws around it. It's not plagiarizing because nobody's yeah. ever written it before. As a matter of fact, if you go on OpenAI, and I'm not sure if it's up there anymore, but uh, on their website, uh, openai.org, but they had this music generator in which they fed the neural network the entire discography of, uh, of Dean Martin or... Uh, was the other guy yeah i think it was dean martin um and it will literally write songs with him singing with a band playing that are songs that have never been written before that sound just like him oh my gosh so it even even the voice like recognition and oh my goodness yeah it writes the lyrics it it has the it 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 recreates the voice of dean martin or uh, frank sinatra that's who it was um and i think they did a few they did like aretha franklin uh, frank sinatra i think they did the rolling stones and you basically it's called like the jukebox i think and you go in there and you click on it and literally it will play for hours and hours of music that sound just like those artists that those artists never wrote. And thus we are eternal. Ooh, this gets creepy. <laughs> right, right. So, so open AI decides like, Hey, look, this technology is so powerful. We have to make this public. We have to release this technology to the public in kind of a fight fire with fire kind of thing. Right. Mm. So one of the advances that I discuss in this article uh, is that Zoom, which we happen to be using right now, recently purchased a real-time translator from a German company called Kites. I read that. Mm -hmm. Right. It will produce voice-to-text translations for dozens and dozens and dozens of languages that is highly accurate. And so where do we go from here? What interpreters need to do to deal with this situation is really kind of, for me, is twofold. One, you need to learn to use artificial intelligence in your practice. Mm. You need to understand how to make it work for you. Uh, 
And that kind of leads into number two, which is specializing. Hmm. I meet interpreters from prestigious universities. Hi, I'm, I'm Seth. I'm a legal interpreter and uh, I work in construction law and uh, I translate Mexican trusts. Yeah, I'm an interpreter too. There are no more just I'm an interpreter. You need to be an interpreter in a field, right? Because specializing is the only thing we have over artificial intelligence. We can understand context and culture, which machines will not be able to do for a very, very long time. Mm. Um, And I can tell you, when I translate a Mexican trust, that there's no way a machine can do that. The context is too specific. Well, cult, the, the cultural references, e- even in those documents. Uh, and so it, we, as interpreters, we all need to embark on a, a, on a mission to specialize. Specialize in subject matter. That is what's going to make the biggest difference. So one of the... Uh, predictions that I have meet Ada about artificial intelligence in the interpreting practice is that I do a lot of, a lot of personal injury work and uh, artificial intelligence works very well when you can control the inputs. Meaning if you can control the sound inputs, it can do its job very well. Well, depositions are perfect for that. Plus, there's the economic interest on behalf of law firms to, to take advantage of that. And I have found incorporating, incorporating it into my practice when I can, I'm still working with it to figure out, to solve a few problems with how to integrate it really uh, seamlessly into my, my practice. Uh, but that... Um, it allows me to have something to check myself during these really long depositions. So I don't fatigue, right? Mm-hmm. Fatigue is something also that interpreters really deal with and artificial intelligence can relieve some of that pressure. And so a deposition might go something like this. And this is what I call post edited consecutive interpretation. It's very much in the way that we post edit translations now right after you pipe them through Google Translate or whatever it is you use. Um, the witness gets a screen, the lawyer gets a screen, the interpreter gets a screen. Every, three people are on an iPad, my court reporter as well. Um, so the attorney begins to ask questions and the witness begins to see the, 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 the questions translated into her language she responds the attorney sees her responses on his screen 99% accurate but in one of her answers she makes a cultural reference and the ai has made a small error this is where the interpreter steps in and says i would like to make a clarification for the record here it is And then the deposition continues. So I see this as a real possibility, and I do see that it's going in this direction. Um, And I think that this is something that we all need to really look at carefully 
because in a lot of contexts, we're not going to have the need for that level of accuracy. Uh, for example, with uh, child support or with um, wellness checks at homes, uh, there's, there's literally dozens of contexts where interpreters who may have a job right now probably won't in the next couple of years mm-hmm. because there will be machines to do this. So, and yeah, there's still that possibility then of uh, machines taking over um, some of this, some of these specializations or some of these areas. I'm curious, though, as you're explaining this and I'm visualizing the scenario that you just gave, Seth, what does that mean for costs for interpreters or fees? Like, is that going to dilute then now? Uh, the cost of interpreter fees? Is this going to be something that is presented as um, a perhaps quicker in the sense of acquiring, obtaining an interpreter for, you know, let's say a court hearing that, I mean, I'm not familiar with the setting, but, you know, something that they need something quick, let's say, and they've picked up, you know, the technology for it. What does that look like? Does that mean that you will still need, I mean, I I know we're predicting here, but you will still need a certified court interpreter in that setting or can now just a bilingual clerk, for instance, um, that they've already hired, that's already in-house, can take that assignment. I'm just curious in terms of costs, like where you foresee this going then, if that's the case. No, that's a a really good question. Um, And it's one I've I've heard before. Um, I think that specializing, again, is where it's at. Right, and I think that the benefit of of uh, of platform technology, which is what uh, GoSignify is, where it's a freelancer platform for specialized interpreters, it allows you to to raise your rates because you are specialty. Um, so, with regard to your example, a MacBook cannot be sworn in as an interpreter yet, so. Uh, that's one thing for the court hearing. Um, you still need accountability. Um, the next point would be media is that having those machines operate, having machines that are highly accurate, like you would need in that situation, are expensive to maintain. Mm-hmm. So unless you have the resources to really have those to, to maintain those systems, it'll be prohibitively expensive, at least in the, in the near future. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I don't think, now keep in mind, like with regard to the, the clerk, the bilingual clerk, uh, what we're talking about is a machine taking over a human's role entirely. Mm-hmm. So um, there might be the example might be, I don't know, the judge has a has a screen in front of her and she has a microphone on the bench and they just mm-hmm. carry on a conversation. And whatever the judge says in English, what she's saying is is a voice to voice translation, interpretation, if you will, for the defendant or the respondent. Um, and so that's a real scenario. And we will see that soon within the next couple of years. Um, there's, and and the reason I kind of keep referring to this as like the next couple of years, the next three years is because we culturally, the world over at a very interesting point in history, um, 
we cannot judge past advances in technology on present advances. And there's a reason why. When I was studying computer science at Baylor, I was introduced to this, this idea called Moore's Law. Moore's Law uh, basically propounds that the number of transistors on a microprocessor will double every two years. Um, I believe Moore was a professor at a Californian university or something like that. He was a, he was a leader in, in uh, Silicon Valley or something like that. But what that means is that computing power is, is going to essentially double every two years, every 18 months to two years. So technological advances up until the year 2021 has been really what's called linear, which means it's flat, right? Now, even though it's flat, technological advances are exponential. It looks like a hockey stick. So for the last 50,000 years, ever since the discovery of fire, we've been kind of trudging along, advancing in technology little by little. And then all of a sudden, in 1985, we have the commercial version of a microprocessor. Now, all of a sudden, this technological advances have just kind of, it's a snowball effect. So what we're doing now is that in the year 2021, we're hitting the elbow of mm. this ex exponential curve in technological development. So technology is going to start advancing incredibly fast here on out. And we are seeing this, especially with technologies like artificial intelligence. Um, right now, an artificially intelligent machine has the IQ uh, maybe of a 10-year-old. But within three to five years, it's going to have the IQ of a computer science engineer at one of Google's best projects. So it's, it's going to be challenging. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things we need to look at as interpreters is how do we maintain our economic value? Mm -hmm. And that is in specializing. Um, and a lot of that means removing the barriers to entry. It means removing the barriers to direct client access. So uh, you want to have business to business contact without a third party involved. And what I have witnessed during my time in the tech community as an interpreter is that I see these platform technologies have just taken off. I mean, look at Uber, right? That was not a smooth transition <laughs> by, by anyone's estimation. I think you're in California, right? I am. Right. So, I mean, it, it has literally changed the face of labor law in California uh, it, it has thrown it into an absolute tailspin. Um, and it's because it's been, it's democratized those opportunities for the average person, right? Now, there's all these arguments about whether the pay or not is fair, and those are legitimate arguments to be made. Right. But, but the fact is, is that if you and I wanted to go sign up and drive for Uber right now, we could hang up, go fill out and start, you mm -hmm. know, within a week mm -hmm. or I'm not sure what their process is, but something like that relatively soon. 
So my idea behind GoSignify was we need direct access to clients. We need third parties to get out of the way because it's not that there's not necessarily any, any use case for the third parties anymore, any of these agencies. It's that we're at a time when our economic value is going to, bec- is going to come under threat. And we need those tools. We need the visibility to be able to market those services and charge for them without much overhead. And that is really one of the missions of GoSignify is to democratize the, the opportunities for interpreters to deal directly with clients. Um, and so when I speak to young interpreters just out of university, a lot of the time it's like, well, I don't know how to get started. I don't have money to market. You know, I don't have... Um, I don't have this or I don't have that, right? And so there's a lot of barriers to entry. I mean, I struggled like heck to get my practice off the ground. It took me easily four years to really build a client list that I could depend on. Even now, right, uh, in the the depths of this pandemic, my business is doing okay. but had I not invested those three or four years aggressively pursuing business, I probably wouldn't have a business right now. Mm-hmm. There's no way for me to contact clients. There's no way for them to see me or hire me easily. Um, billing uh, takes a lot of effort. <laughs> I mean, you know, invoicing is takes easily takes up as much time as my interpreting practice. Um, and so the idea behind GoSignify is to really provide uh, skilled interpreters with a way to advertise their specialized interpretation services. Mm. And I believe that's going to be really important moving forward because I do think that um, artificial intelligence is going to play a big role. I mean, I even had a judge tell me uh, just a couple of months ago that they went to start a trial and of course the the defendant comes in and she's late and this and that. Well, the judge finds out that the defendant is not a native English speaker. So the attorney takes out the phone, hooks her up to Google translate. Now, a lot of us are like, this is totally ridiculous. And of course it, of course it was, but it underscores what is coming. Uh, that there will be uh, instances in which there is kind of people in a pinch and they're like, well, I'm just going to use this, right? I'm, I'm, I'm going to, uh, to just uh, pop out my phone or, or my iPad and, and have, and, and I'll get us enough of a translation there. Right. Well, I think in a world of, you know, that, um, that quick turnaround, right. Where, uh, er- everything is instant or at least expected. Like that's what we're seeing. Um, I think that, that it plays a huge role in, in decision-making such as that one in a scenario like that, um, where it's because of, uh, delays or, you know, just a quick turnaround time that people automatically think something in my pocket, right. That we're able to instant, 
instant gratification, right? Like it's that instant connection and Google or, you know, technology is doing that. You know, that's the world. That's just the world we live in nowadays. I, I want to, you know, this conversation I, I know can carry on forever, Seth. And this topic I think is of absolute importance because it's top of mind for many language professionals as we see mm-hmm. new technologies being present presented. And um even the, the ones we don't see necessarily, like the one that I'm I'm totally gonna geek out on and in what the one that you just told me with regards to the creation of, of blogs, even or for assistance. Um, so but I, we need to wrap up. Uh, unfortunately, but I do want to leave you with a couple of things. Um, And then, of course, I'd like to ask you uh, a couple of last questions. I had a gentleman, a Japanese interpreter uh, on the show. He spoke about a notion of deverbalization. And it's basically, I'm going to read the definition here because it's the difference between us humans and machine translations, right? Uh, At least that's how he spoke about it and talking about the process of uh, understanding the meaning and the intention that's hidden behind the words, right? And a lot of it has to do with that mental image, that imagination, what we have as humans, that's what differentiates us from the machines. And it sounds like, you know, we've got some time before machines start spitting out images uh, uh, in terms of, you know, understanding it for the purposes of language. I think they're already, in a sense, doing that with the what is it called? Uh, the 3D printing. <laughs> They're already spitting out images sure. somehow, right? Sure. But it sure. sounds like we've got some time still to prepare and learn how to marry technology into what we're doing by means of specializing in some way. And I'm I'm ecstatic to see more of these conversations take place in platforms that are for language professionals that is just you know, openly talking about this as opposed to making it a taboo subject and refusing to infuse it in our conversations. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas to only those that are forcing themselves into hearing about this will actually have a bit of a, an advance um, in terms of, of preparing ourselves for what what's really already happening. We're just not seeing it quite as open yet. But before that happens and, you know, before we've got all that uh, in our face, Seth, what is a recommendation that you can make right now to language professionals, young and new and uh, seasoned and experienced that they can begin now in terms of preparing for the future? We are in the future, but how can we better prepare now for these, these advances that are going to hit us like a tidal wave? At least it'll feel like that. <laughs> it's been well, coming, well, but it, at least it'll feel that it, way. It, it is, and it is. And so um, there was recently um, some research that came out of Upwork. Upwork is a very large freelance platform. So as interpreters, we are among some of the very first freelancers true freelance talent. Um, And since the start of the pandemic until today, I learned on Upwork that 36% of the U.S. labor force is freelance. 
Nobody wanted to recognize this when pan, when the pandemic started. It, it, it was so dire media that President Trump had to come up with an executive order to cover freelance and uh, freelance workers for unemployment insurance. Because even though I've been paying taxes for years as a freelancer, I had no right to that, right? And so Uber drivers, no access to it. You're not a W-2 employee. So it, it was, it, it was, it went unrecognized for so long that there had to be an executive order to make sure that we were covered. And this is more than, I mean, 36% is a huge number. There are more people who are going to come into freelance before the end of this pandemic than probably over the last 10 years. That would be my prediction. A lot of people fleeing uh, commutes and office work and looking just for a better life, a better life work uh, balance um, are going to come into language services. So, one of the things that interpreters can do now is to really start to um, understand how you can incorporate technologies into your service. Um, one of the things GoSignify does is that we have uh, an in-app chat, which allows interpreters to chat directly with the person who requested them. It comes with a certain level of automation that allows interpreters to provide, for the first time ever, customer service, right? Which is uh, just automated emails about when a job's going to start, whenever you're, whenever a client has has added a new document for you. Some of it's incredibly simple, but it's it it, it adds so much value because we've become so accustomed to it. I mean, when you order something off of Amazon, how many emails do you get? You're like, you know exactly where it's at, when it's going to show up. And so it's become such a it, it's become so ingrained in our minds that we don't realize like, wait, I'm offering a service and I've never been able to take advantage of these very simple technologies that make a huge difference. I mean, some of these auto, some of these automations have made the difference between Amazon being the leader and Walmart struggling to stay alive. Mm. Just simple things like that. So uh, learning to use technology in any way you can. Um, joining local organizations, very important. It's very important for interpreters to know other interpreters, to be involved in a local community, to uh, work closely with uh, immigrants who are new in the community. Um, that's very important. Uh, I, as a matter of fact, I would say that community engagement is, is critically important. Um, again, a MacBook cannot join the Austin area at Translators and Interpreter Association yet. Um, so but you can through your MacBook. <laughs> yes, but I can through my MacBook. And as a matter of fact, I am on the board of the AATIA. Um, and so uh, joining organizations and learning to integrate the technology 
and specializing. And so specializing media, I don't want it to give it, I don't want to give the impression that it's just having some kind of special subject matter. It is having some specialized area, but it's also finding clients who value your work. Mm. And that is one of the areas that interpreters really struggle with Mm -hmm. because we've been under the thumb for a very long time of conventional brick and mortar agencies. Mm. They're, They're just out to make money. They're business people. But it's gotten to the point now where we are at an inflection point in the profession of in language services where we cannot move forward if those conventions are still in place. What's happened to what's happening is, is that I am seeing fewer millennials and Gen Zers come into the profession, which is a very bad thing because we are at a point when a a lot of interpreters are retiring, but the barriers to entry are so high that we're not seeing fresh talent. And that's a big problem. So, Go Signify provides young interpreters who have studied, gotten a credential, a way to get started. Um, and you can build your client list, and your relationships. We provide the technology. That's all. And you run your own business. We're not there to make you sign freelance work agreements and tell you you can't compete with us for two years and all of this stuff. That is an impediment to the growth of our profession. Um, And we need to move beyond that. It's time to move beyond that. And that's why I founded Go Signify with my brother. Um, And so those are a few of the ideas that I have around what we can do as professionals moving forward. No, excellent resources and excellent advice. I think there is a... You know, so much more to learn about this topic. And um, like I'd mentioned earlier, being able to stay abreast of uh, what's out there in our industry and, um, you know, making those wise decisions based on the information that, mm-hmm. you know, we're, we're searching for at this point. Maybe at some point uh, there will be an association where it's um, all specialties for language professionals, but that really focus on uh, AI and, you know, just the technology in itself. I think that would be an incredible new association to be a part of so that we can, in all different specialties that we are in the industry, in be able to take part of and have these, you know, open conversations about it. But until that happens, you can listen to information (laughs) (laughs) such as this episode today with Seth Hammock and all the great information that we just received. Seth, where can our listeners find out more about you and the work that you do? Well, of course, uh, you can find me on LinkedIn, uh, Seth Hammock. Um, you can also go to gosignify.com um, and you can find information there about the platform and about what I'm trying to do. Um, you can join the mailing list um, or follow the Go Signify LinkedIn page where I also post regular updates about uh, subjects like this. 
Yes, you do. And uh, LinkedIn is one of my favorite uh, professional platforms. So I totally encourage anyone that does not have, I don't you have, I don't know, but does not have a LinkedIn profile yet to go create one and definitely follow Seth because we will be looking forward for that article to come out, Seth. And um, I'm very much looking forward to reading that. Seth, it's been such a privilege and an amazing conversation. Uh, you know, we'll have to have a part two at some point and be able to bring you back and see where we're at. Maybe by then, um, you know, it'll be a different type of technology that has been introduced that we can kind of decipher and try to figure out whether it's a good thing or a bad thing or just a thing, a new thing. I want to thank you so very much for your time and for being on the show and sharing your abundant knowledge with this community. I very much appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. And I will look forward to the part two. (laughs) Take care. Hey, thanks for sticking around till the very end. If you'd like to connect with me, head on over to the website, brandtheinterpreter.com and click on the connect with me tab. You can also stay connected on social media, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube as Brand the Interpreter or Mireya Perez on LinkedIn. Till next time.